Hi, folks, and welcome to our 4th of July special episode of the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I guess we should be playing some patriotic music, shouldn't we, David? Yes, I assumed you would have that cued at... And I was right. That's right. It's 4th of July once again, where we celebrate our country's independence from (laughs) the loathsome tyranny of the British Parliament. George the Third, and none other than the man we've been discussing in our podcast the past well, several weeks. The past Jeremy Bentham. episode. Um, anyway, yes, yeah. Jeremy Bentham. But of all the things that we're free from now, I think that Jeremy Bentham is one of my uh, mm-hmm. my personal favorites. You know, our freedom from him is very near and dear to my heart. I, I don't mean, know about yours, David. Maybe not quite as much as 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 you, but yes. Mm-hmm. So, so last year for this episode, well, I guess, you know, before we jump in, let, let's just play our intro, then we can give you some updates, and then we'll explain what exciting program we have That's in right. store for you folks this Look week. Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. So trial of John Eastman's in full swing right now. In fact, that's where I will be tomorrow as of the date that we're recording this. Um, You know, injustices of every kind going on there. Um, Needless to say, I don't know what other updates you want to give, David. That's kind of the big thing on my radar right now. I don't know if you know lawyers, but when they're in trial, there tends to be one thing they're focused on. Yeah, as far as Lex Rex business, I think that's, that's probably the number one thing. Um, Last episode, we explained we were going to do three episodes about Jeremy Bentham. This is the second of those. And uh, we we left the third episode a little bit open-ended. I know we want to talk about Bentham's influence on modern policing. That's still the case. And um, that may be the only Bentham-related content in that next episode, because there's also uh, quite a bit of important Supreme Court news that we're going to have to cover as well. Um, if you... No, we got to cover more Bentham, David. <laughs> people have to know about this guy and why he sucks. Well, I think between last episode, this episode, and that one, I, I think we might be giving plenty on that. But we'll, you know, we'll see how the timing goes. But uh, um, for those of you who've been paying attention to the headlines recently, uh, rest assured, we will be addressing at least some of those uh, in short order. Fair enough. Yeah, some really big ones. Yeah. More v. Harper came out yesterday, as of the date of our recording. I'm going to be last. Tuesday, as of the date people listen to this podcast. Um, Different from what we expected, so we'll be discussing that in the future. But for today, what do we have planned? Well, last year, Mm -hmm. if you listen to our 4th of July special, and I do recommend it, but last year, we discussed the Declaration of Independence. So this year, we're going to be discussing Jeremy Bentham's review of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. Not a big fan. No, it's. I uh... uh, didn't really like the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> we have uploaded that document, Jeremy Bentham's short review of the Declaration, to our website, lexrex.org. We strongly encourage you to read that ahead of time so that you can fully appreciate the inanity and sophistry. Well, can you call it sophistry? I don't know. It's. In many ins- in 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 many ways, it's really just sort of more um, attempted snark, I would say, than anything else. Particularly the beginning. Yeah, but um, you know, not 
not necessarily successful attempts at snark, though. Right. Uh, I, I guess, you know, listeners can judge for themselves on that front. I don't think it was particularly well executed. Um, now, you know, you say listeners can judge for themselves, but I don't think we're going to be hiding our biases no. too much in this episode. <laughs> we will not. So. I think we we uh, can openly say we disagree <laughs> with Jeremy Bentham on this, uh, which, you know, if you were... Li- yeah, I think the Declaration of Independence was good. I think yeah. Jeremy Bentham is pretty stupid uh-huh. on most of what he says about it. Yeah. It, <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, David. It, well, I was just going to say, you know, if you listened last year when we had some fairly good things to say about the declaration of independence. I think you can probably put it together that (laughs) when we, uh, when we see the things Jeremy Bentham has to say about it, that we will not agree with him on, on them. Um, No, no, just to put it mildly. So I think we're going to be going through the whole thing. We'll give our comments as we go. Mm. You can think of this as sort of our audio visual commentary of Jeremy Bentham's short review of the declaration of independence. So, yeah, obviously, if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> big Lex Rex recommendation on that one. Yeah. Uh, you can actually get a copy of that for a small donation on our website, LexRex.org. Comes with the Constitution, too, as an added bonus. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we highly recommend reading that document if you haven't. But anyway, without further ado, you know, I think we ought to jump right into it at this point. And there we are. That is the short review of the Declaration of Independence by Jeremy Bentham. Again, you can download this on our website. So if you want to read along, go there, grab a copy of this. In examining this singular declaration, I have hitherto confined myself to what are given as facts and alleged against his majesty and his parliament in support of the charge of tyranny and usurpation. Of the preamble, I have taken little or no notice. The truth is, little or none does it deserve. The opinions of the modern Americans on government, like those of their good ancestors on witchcraft, would be too ridiculous to deserve any notice if, like them too, contemptible and extravagant as they be, they had not led to the most serious evils. Uh, So we we start off right with that old song of, ha ha, the Americans were one of the last societies to persecute witches. Uh, Look how backward and stupid they must be. It's an obvious ad hominem. Yeah. And one that people still make today. Have we done our episode on Salem yet? No, I, I don't think we no, have. We have we? we? At some point, we there's a lot of will. stuff to keep in mind when, when looking at the Salem witch trials. I mean, one of the first one, obviously, is at the period of history in which it occurred. America was quite a bit more religious than the than Europe was at that point in history. Um, obviously, there were witch persecutions in Europe throughout most of the Middle Ages. Most of that had stopped by the time the Salem witch hysteria hit America. And, you know, I, I kind of like Paul Johnson's words on this. He's a famous historian, um, pretty good one if you like historians. But what he has to say about Salem witch trials is really the remarkable part about the witch trials is not the fact that Americans put witches on trial. Everybody's done that yeah. at some point or another. It's the speed and vehemence with which Americans later realized that what they had done in basically the unjust prosecution of these trials, that was wrong, uh, and they corrected it swiftly. I think the other thing to remember about it is, um, is was it Cotton Mather? What's the, what's the guy's name? It was name? one of the Mathers. I think it would have been the younger Mather, and I think that was Cotton. 
Um, I think increase with it was his okay. was his father or grandfather. I don't. It's been a long time since I've uh, actually looked into any of this in any depth, but uh, one of the Mathers, at any rate. I think you're right. <laughs> but the important thing to remember about Mather, whichever one it was, yeah. is he was a Harvard man. Um, he was part of the intellectual elite, the intelligentsia that existed at the time, and his big theory was that he, he'd seen that. You know, Charles Linnaeus was very successful in classifying and categorizing animals. He'd seen that Newton did a very good job of doing that with physics. And his goal was to apply some kind of mathematical scientific schema to the phenomenon of witchcraft and demonic possession. So at the time, Bather would have been viewed as somebody who was really you know, the, the positivistic scientific bent of things, not at all the religious sectarian backward bent of things. Um, yeah. that, that's sort of a retroactive looking back at it. You know, now we look at persecuting witches at all as sort of a, you know, an anti-scientific um, right. religious thing to do. That is not how it would have been viewed at the time. Uh, and the what ended up happening for the Salem witch, and we don't need to get into that too much. Anyway, Jeremy <laughs> Bentham's dumb for pointing out that. But I, suffice it to say, the, the justice system that was set up for Salem was one that was completely independent from the regular Massachusetts justice system. And most of its abuses came from that, because as any ad hoc committee does, they felt they had to justify their own existence. Uh, and that's why ad hoc committees tend to be a bad thing. Um, anyway, we can get into that in our episode about it. Yeah. It's sort of just a slight on Americans for being. Yeah. Also, he's, you know, the preamble that he's talking about here. That's the when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one, you know, the, the famous part that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yeah. That's the part of which he says that he has taken little or no notice because it doesn't deserve any. Right. Uh, I think that the weight of history would probably disagree with him on that. All right, David, you want to take the next paragraph? Sure. In this preamble, however, it is that they attempt to establish a theory of government a theory as absurd and visionary as the system of conduct and defense of which it is established is nefarious. Don't you love his, his sentences? Like, you know, just this, this wonderful prose. Um, we talked to you about that last week. We, <laughs> we said that he has these ridiculously Byzantine sentences. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can see indeed he does. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he goes on. Here it is that maxims are advanced in justification of their enterprises against the British government. To these maxims adduced for this purpose, it would be sufficient to say that they are repugnant to the British Constitution. But beyond this, they are subversive of every actual or imaginable kind of government. I also don't really understand how he uses wow. italics, uh, so, but um, that's that's really neither here nor well, there. Well, I was going to comment that. Yeah. So those, those of you who may have noticed his idiosyncratic use of italics here mm -hmm. uh, may think that this is just a feature of prose from this time period. It's not. This is just a Bentham thing. Yeah. Uh, nobody else writing in 1776 was doing this. Um, or, you know, if they were, they were also a bad this writer. This was good to do. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> it, this was not standard no. in 1776. No. And also, those of you who listened to our previous episode or, or watched it um, may note the irony in him accusing someone else of having an absurd and visionary idea of what government should be. Uh, when, if you'll recall, his idea was that we should just make a law for every logical kind of thing that could possibly happen and make it uh -huh. make it in such a way that judges will 
just automatically understand what's going on and there's no need for any nuanced kind of interpretation ever. Well, when he says theory of government, he means the theory of government's legitimacy, right? That, that is true. So yes. he thinks that a rational theory of government is one that um, would promote the greatest happiness. Yep. But he thinks that one that is to secure the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is just absurd right. and visionary. Mm-hmm. If it can make you happy, that's fine. But allowing you to pursue that, well, that's just absurd. <laughs> he gets a he he gets a little bit hypocritical on that point, as we'll see. Uh, I think momentarily, maybe maybe in the the next paragraph or two. But um, I'm getting ahead of yeah, myself. Also, the conduct in defense of which it is established is nefarious. Like, yeah, because he's saying that our government itself is nefarious. Oh. A little bit. We didn't introduce this document too much. He was commissioned to write this by the British Parliament. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was basically the official response to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. If you're wondering why it's worth noticing at all, (laughs) that's probably the first and last reason. Um, Unless... We're not actually, you know... We are not certain that Bentham wrote this in the same way that we are not certain which founding fathers wrote which Federalist papers. Um, yeah. I can tell you his fingerprints are all over. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody else that wrote this. Thing. And I, I don't I don't <laughs> think anyone seriously disputes that he did, uh, at least not that I've ever seen. But no, no serious person. That's yeah. that's true. <laughs> OK, they are. T- <laughs> This part's good. They are about to assume, as they tell Mm -hmm. us, among the powers of the earth that equal and separate station to which they have lately discovered, the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. What difference these acute legislators suppose between the laws of nature and nature's God is more than I can take upon me to determine or even to guess. If, to what they now demand, they are entitled by any law of God, they had only to produce that law, and all controversy was at an end. Instead of this, what do they produce? What they call self-evident truths. All men, they tell us, are created equal. This rarity is a new discovery. Now, for the first time, we learn that a child at the moment of his birth has the same quantity of natural power as the parent, the same quantity of political power as the magistrate. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Lots of problems here. Mm Also, just the derisive way that he writes about this is like, so when I was studying for the bar exam, uh, a lot of what I, well, it's hard to motivate yourself to keep studying because it's so boring to do. Um, And what I would do to find motivation actually is I I would read this because nothing (laughs) made me angrier at the British and prouder for our American system of law than knowing that we no longer had to put up with crap like this. So, you know, take solace in that. We don't have to put up with this guy or anybody like him ever again. Anyway, assume among the powers of the earth that separate and equal station, which they've lately discovered the laws of nature's God entitled them to. Yeah. Which he, this is not a new theory. No. And also, I think he, he misunderstood the prose of that part of the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't saying that, you know these things are, are an entitlement of America specifically. It's stated as a general thing about any new polity uh, separating from a different one. Uh, so I, I feel like he, he doesn't seem to have, uh-huh. to have when in the that. course of human events, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, right over his anyway. head. <laughs> okay. And then he says that 
You know, he doesn't say we don't cite our sources in the Declaration of Independence because we we affirm self-evident truths. I mean, mm-hmm. what Jefferson's doing there is a fundamental philosophical treatise right. grounded in, as, as philosophy, I think, rightly ought to be, in self-affirming axioms because that's the only way you can validly reason from a proper starting point, right, is to have things that you presuppose to be true. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I want to... No, he says that... This is a failure of evidence because we didn't put forth any evidence showing that nature's God says these things. I want to back up just a bit and say about the the thing about him not understanding what distinction there's supposed to be between the laws of nature and of nature's God. There's not supposed to be a distinction between those two things. Those aren't separate groups of laws. <laughs> That's the whole yeah, point. Um, right. The laws of nature are the laws of nature's God is the the you know the the thrust of that particular sentence um so but anyway yeah the idea that that those are the laws being described that's the description right. of the laws and, but you know, you're right it's though, not the um, laws of nature and the laws of nature's god right <laughs> the the idea that we should have just shown him where these laws were written down <laughs> and then and then it could have been an easy thing uh is as you as you've already pointed out very uh, very ridiculous. Um, no one is claiming that, you know, there's, there's stone tablets that say you get independence under these circumstances. Uh, that's not at all what the declaration of independence meant. Uh, what it meant by self evident There actually might be, I mean, a lot of our founding fathers would probably point to the, the scriptures sure, for that, sure. but their point was you don't need to make recourse to the scriptures for that point. Right. You, you can look even at creation, even at nature itself. Right. And you can see these truths as self-evident. Right. Um, and yeah, there, there's the implication also that if something is self-evident, then it is part of the law of nature. Um, so that's, that's sort of what that entails. Um, things that you just can't deny. Right. They are clear to everyone. Um, but of course, Jeremy does deny them. <laughs> right. And which ones does he deny specifically? Well, the idea that all men are created equal. Right. Um, because he thinks that children aren't equal to parents <laughs> and that... Subjects are not equal to, to um, magistrates. Sub- right, yeah. because he thinks that Jefferson is referring to hierarchy here. Mm-hmm. Like authority, hierarchies of authority. This is actually a mistake uh-huh. that I didn't know anybody in 1776 was dumb enough to make. You know, it's it's a mistake that you hear people making a lot of times now, mm-hmm. that if somebody is in charge of somebody else, the two are not equal, you know, ontological equals. Right. I think it's, you know, nowadays it's often rooted in Marxism, uh, the idea that, you know, one person is exploiting the other, I guess, by yeah. having authority over them. You're, you're defined by your material. I didn't know anybody in 1776 was... Right, yeah. right. I didn't know anybody in 1776 was dumb enough to make that mistake. No. That is obviously not the kind of equality that Jefferson is referring to in the Declaration of Independence. He is referring to what? To ontological equality, equality in value. He's referring to our native political equality. Yeah. Uh, that that no man is naturally put in authority over another by virtue of who he is as a man. Uh, it's purely by virtue of his circumstances or or his positioning in society. Um, yeah, you know, I think a basic purview of John Locke would have been in order here for Mister Bentham. <laughs> yeah, but 
in many ways similar to to modern Marxists, I suppose. Um, Bentham doesn't really believe that anything like you know human dignity or human rights really exist. Um, so, on on right. what basis can you be equal if not power in station? Uh, and yeah, uh, I think that that's more revealing of the way he thinks um, than it is of any flaw in in the Declaration. Well, and it's very, you know, among many other things, I would imagine that would really not have sat well with most Englishmen living at the time. Because I think native equality of the subject and the sovereign is part of the root of English liberties. Yeah, if if they were being fair-minded. Yeah, that's the reason. Yeah. But that's the reason why you can have something like Magna Carta. That's the reason why you can petition the king for redress. Is is he's put in a particular station that gives him certain authorities that he's able to exercise. But as far as you know, you as people, the king is your equal. And that's why you can make demands of him. And of course, that's the basis in our Declaration of Independence for making demands against the king as well. Yeah. But Jerry Bentham doesn't agree. He <laughs> thinks some people are better than others. Anyway, uh, David, want to take the next paragraph? Yeah. The rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, by which if they mean anything, they must mean the right to enjoy life, to enjoy liberty, and to pursue happiness, which I want to take a moment there <laughs> because... The first two, you know, yeah, it doesn't say the right to the enjoyment of life, the enjoyment of liberty, but the the third one literally does say the pursuit of happiness. So I don't know why he thinks it makes any sense to uh, to distinguish between. He thinks they all just should have been infinite. Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure why he thinks that's so important. Um, but uh, anyway, Um Anyway, all those things. Also, no, it literally is the rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of... Those are the rights. Those are the three rights we're addressing. Yeah. It, it, it's not... Those rights exist irrespective of how people use them. Right. And I, we'll get to that uh, certainly much more at the end of the paragraph. But um, anyway, all those rights, he says, they hold to be unalienable. This they hold to be among truths self-evident. At the same time, to secure those rights, they are content that governments should be instituted. They perceive not, or will not seem to perceive, that nothing which can be called government ever was or ever could be in any instance exercised, but at the expense of one or other of those rights. That consequently... That's the point, Jeremy. Yeah. That's the point. That, You're not following the argument, Jeremy. That consequently, in as many instances as government is ever exercised, some one or other of these rights pretended to be unalienable is actually alienated. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Again, the reason why it doesn't say to enjoy life, to enjoy liberty, and to pursue happiness is that the possession of these rights doesn't have anything to do with their exercise. In fact, every day, by deciding to, when I decide to go to work, I am exercising my liberty in such a way that is necessarily mutually exclusive of all things that are not going to work, yep. right? As soon as I'm decided to go to work, I'm no longer at liberty to do things that exclude that. That is a fundamental feature of human existence. We can't avoid that because we are finite beings. 
when Jefferson sets up and establishes that there is a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, what he's saying is that we create government not to alienate people of those rights, but to control the exercise of those rights. Mm -hmm. You are alienated of a right when you no longer have it. Yeah. When you consent to a government, which is the very next sentence in the Declaration of Independence, you are necessarily exercising that right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for the protection of same. Yep. That's why consent of the governed matters. If you don't have consent of the governed in government, then yeah, government is alienating you of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, or you know any one of those things. Right. That's literally the argument being made. Yeah. Um, he doesn't follow it, though. No, and it's, as we've discussed before, it, this is a very modern sort of mistake he makes or position he holds, if you want to be kinder to him. Uh, for some reason, he doesn't deserve it. Um, but the idea that... Um, <laughs> no. The idea that, yeah, that accepting that you know, there are rules that the government makes that you have to abide by is actually losing rights as opposed to entrusting rights to the government. Um, it's very, very modern. Right. It's like saying I lost my money by putting it in a bank. Mm -hmm. No, you hired the bank to safeguard your money. And then, you know, banks may have conditions about when it can be withdrawn. Maybe you can only withdraw 10,000 at a time, something like that. Yeah. Still your money. You still... It's still yours. You haven't been alienated of your money. Right. Governments are the same with rights. You know, he doesn't understand that no. <laughs> at all. That men who are engaged in the design of subverting a lawful government should endeavor by a cloud of words to throw a veil over their design, that they should endeavor to beat down the criteria between tyranny and lawful government is not at all surprising. But rather surprising, it must certainly appear that they should advance maxims so incompatible with their own present conduct. If the right of enjoying life be unalienable, whence came their invasion of His Majesty's province of Canada? Whence the unprovoked destruction of so many lives of the inhabitants of that province? If the right, by the way, that's just a horrible sentence. <laughs> if the right of enjoying liberty be unalienable, whence came so many of His Majesty's peaceful subjects among them without any offense, without so much as a pretended offense, merely for being suspected not to wish well of their enormities, to be held in their durance? If the right of pursuing happiness be unalienable, how is it that so many others of their fellow citizens are by the same injustice and violence made miserable, their fortunes ruined, their persons banished, and driven from their friends and families? Or would they have it believed that there is in themselves some superior sanctity, some peculiar privilege by which those things are lawful to them which are unlawful to the rest of the world besides? Or is it that among acts of coercion, acts by which life or liberty are taken away, that the pursuit of happiness restrained, those only are unlawful which their delinquency has brought upon them and which are exercised by regular, long-established, accustomed governments? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a big part of this is that he's refusing to even sort of entertain the idea that we had actually formed a separate polity at this point um in you know just insisting even though the first right <laughs> paragraph explained that yeah you know I insisting <laughs> that you know no 
these are just regular criminals, which, you know, I guess that that makes sense as a, a rhetorical point. Uh, if you're parliament, you don't want to admit that the, uh, that the Americans were a separate nation, but um, doesn't. At the very least though, the Americans had filed a bill of complaint and the declaration of independence wasn't the first time they did that. Uh... Like parliament and the King were on sufficient notice that there were grievances that had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll get to to his opinion of the, the run up to this uh, in in a bit. Uh, suffice it to say, it's not a good opinion. <laughs> but, uh, but people might say this, you know, an idiot, an idiot might say this nowadays. Like, how, how can they say that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness are unalienable when the American government takes those away from people all the time? Well, firstly, a lot of that's bad when it does it. Uh, but some, <laughs> secondly, even when it does it justly, you know, that's not a violation of those principles because th- those are the conditions and circumstances that, that have been... Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to Lockean um, theory of government, right? If somebody else deprives somebody of their life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness, um, then you know, the, the, in the state of even the state of nature, there's some kind of just consequence to it. Yeah. Um, you know, same thing with if you send 30,000 troops into New York Harbor and then start trying to take over a lawfully enacted government, like you're probably going to meet some resistance. Mm-hmm. In these tenets, they have outdone the utmost extravagance of all former fanatics. The German Anabaptists... All former mm -hmm, fanatics. The German Anabaptists indeed went so far as to speak of the right of enjoying life as a right unalienable. To take away life, even in the magistrate, they held to be unlawful. But they went no further. Uh, It was reserved for an American Congress to add to the number of of unalienable rights that of enjoying liberty and pursuing happiness. I... Brief moment to observe, he's he's now just insisting on using his form of those instead of what they actually wrote, um, which is liberty uh-huh. and pursuit of <laughs> Actual expressed rights, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, that is... It. That is such a mean comparison, too, that Munster Anabaptists, like... <sighs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that is, if they mean anything, pursuing it whenever a man thinks he can see it, and by whatever means he thinks he can attain it, that is, that all penal laws, those made by themselves among others which affect life or liberty are contrary to the law of God. That's not at all what the argument is. Um, And unalienable rights of mankind. That is that thieves are not to be restrained from theft, murderers from murder, rebels from rebellion. Well Uh, done. Boy, you really followed the argument there. Again, I feel like we're spelling out the same thing. I, I think a lot of what he's doing here, He's going sentence by sentence, and he's refuting the claim made in each sentence, irrespective of how those claims fall within a broader argument. Kind of like if you gave something to chat, actually a little worse than chat GPT would do. (laughs) Um, Like they they would at least be able to follow a string of thought and and see what a logical argument was. Yeah. No, this isn't right. No. (laughs) Again, the rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness are unalienable. Governments are instituted among men to protect those rights. So I don't know how you can read that to say that it's totally fine to not have any penal laws and allow anybody to abuse those rights. Yeah. Well, you know what it, what it is and what I'm almost certain is in fact, what happened is he sat down to read the declaration of independence determined to find every part of it objectionable and just sort of noted down his initial reactions to everything as he went. Um, 
I just want to point out here that this guy was in favor of the French Revolution. <laughs> yeah. He was a proponent of that one because that one had good, strong, solid grounds, like getting rid of a king, because <laughs> kings are outmoded and old-fashioned and don't promote the happiness of the greatest number of people. But if you have a revolution or you know an independence movement that grounds itself on unalienable rights, well, that's just insane. <laughs> yeah. You know, stop that one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, even, even then, the the French revolutionaries recognized an actual right to equality, by which they meant, well, some of them meant different things, but some of them at least meant equality of like status, which he's already said is an absurd principle to hold to. Um, no, he said it's absurd to say that men are created equal. I don't think he would disagree at that, all that, that you should can be make them made equal. equal. Yeah, that, that's fair. I guess that is a way he could be consistent. It's not the way this comes off, um, but uh, at any rate, yeah. No, it just comes off like he doesn't like equality. Right. <laughs> Here, they have put the axe to the root of all government, and yet in the same breath, they talk of governments, of governments long established. To these last, they attribute the same kind of respect. They vouchsafe even to go so far as to admit that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient reasons. Yeah. Of course, I think he's assuming here that the reasons why we are changing our government are light and transient, mm -hmm. despite the fact that the document that he's reading exists specifically to detail what the long train of abuses and usurpations were. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I'm just going to go right into the next paragraph because that's exactly what he says. Um, yet they are about to change a government, a government whose establishment is coeval with their own existence as a community. Um, what causes do they assign? Circumstances which have always subsisted, which must continue to subsist, Wherever government has subsisted or can subsist, subsist. Um. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so if you read the Declaration of Independence, we did this last mm -hmm. year, and you should listen to that episode. But if you go through the different complaints that are brought, I, how many were there, like 13 of them, something like that? Uh, quite a few. I don't remember the exact number, but yeah. Yeah. it's I, I forget how many causes of action we had there, but th there's like a bunch of different abuses that are listed there mm -hmm. nearly all of them are actually i think all of them i think all of them were new yeah you know things that were enacted in the past 10 15 years or so not things that were true uh you know that were laws that had always applied to the american colonies so he's just flat out wrong yeah here. and he uh, the circumstances have demonstrably changed he gives the sense that what what he's talking about are just sort of general things that have to be true of government which is not at all what what is contained in the declaration oh governments have to send over bands of mercenaries <laughs> to oppress people <laughs> that's what i was about to say yeah but if you actually look at the declaration of independence it's all very specific <laughs> things like things that happened at a particular place in time not just generally like oh they don't let us do whatever we want or sometimes they make us pay money um <laughs> Which is sort of the sense you get from this. Um, <laughs> no, it's like specific acts they're objecting right. to. <laughs> anyway, he's going to go on okay. more yeah, that's just about that, though, in this next paragraph. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember this part. Mm -hmm. 
for what, according to their own showing, what was their original, their only original grievance? By the way, this guy way underuses comics. Yeah. <laughs> that they were actually taxed more than they could bear? No. But that they were liable to be so taxed? What is the amount of all of their subsequent grievances that they allege? That they were actually oppressed by government? That government has actually misused its power? No. But that it was possible that they might be oppressed. Possible that government might misuse its powers. Is there anywhere that, that can be imagined anywhere that government where subjects are not liable to be taxed more than they can bear, where it is not possible that subjects can be oppressed, not possible that government may misuse its powers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So his objection here is that we dislike when our this is why the rights part was important, Jeremy. That's why you had to understand what we were saying earlier about unalienable rights and that government doesn't take rights when it exists. It merely acts as trustee of those rights because the entire objection here is that government is acting ultra virus, right? Yeah. Um, it has powers that it should not have, that it was never given. Yeah. and Because the right belongs ultimately to us. You know, the, the tax thing is is marginally different because you know as much as bad teachers often do teach that the that the uh the american revolutionaries were upset because of taxation that's it's not really right but he's just well that was a slogan that was a popular well, no taxation without representation not no taxation it's too much tax right um which is sort of what he's uh so he's, he's sort of right about that it's the complaint was not actually just that the taxes are too damn high um, to quote or to paraphrase no, no. the uh, the rent is too damn high guy, um, but as far in terms of government oppression, no, we we did allege specific acts of government oppression. That's just factually wrong. Um, they, were, they were the only things. But, you know, you're you're right, David. You're absolutely right. I think the more significant point yeah. here is that yeah, this is sort of what makes the American independence movement unique. Right is that we were offended at the abuse of our rights more so than about the actual material circumstances that were imposed yeah. on us by government. I mean, it's like we talked about this last year about how the uh, the tea that was subject to the Stamp Act was actually cheaper tea yeah. because the uh, exclusive trade monopoly that had been created with the East India Company. Right. Americans still boycotted that in droves because they disliked there being an exclusive monopoly predicated on a power they'd never consented to. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that, that is a substantial difference. You know, it, it, he can say there's ne never been a government where it's not possible to do these various abuses. That isn't true. The government that we exist under today is one in which it's impossible to commit these abuses. And that was supposed to be true of the English government that the colonists existed under. You know, there were there was the English Bill of Rights. There was Magna Carta. There was, uh, you know, the Solemn League and Covenant. There were all kinds of pre-existing guarantees where the sovereign said that he would not strip people of certain rights. Yeah. But ultimately, none of those things actually matter to Bentham because he doesn't believe in, in on, a, on a very real level, he doesn't actually believe in the idea of being bound by law. Um, he thinks law is just sort right. of a tool that you use to get good outcomes as best you can. Um, and if that means offending people's sense of their rights, that's probably how he would see it. So be it. Um, but yeah, that, that's very fundamentally antithetical to everything that the founding fathers were trying to accomplish.
which is why we think he's worth reading, right? Because this has become sort of the dominant view of law yeah. in modern America, and it is not one that's consistent with our legal foundations at right. all. Okay, next paragraph. we got to move a little faster through this Yeah, thing. I, and if I remember correctly, some of these are going to be a little less interesting than the beginning, so maybe it'll make it easier for us. But uh-huh. anyway, <clears throat> this, I say, is the amount, the whole sum and substance of all their grievances. Again, the, the italics are so weird. Um, anyway, uh, for in taking a general review of the charges brought against His Majesty and his Parliament, we may observe that there is a studied confusion in the arrangement of them. It may therefore be worthwhile to reduce them to the several distinct heads under which I should have classed them at the first, had not the order of the answer been necessarily prescribed by the order, or rather the disorder of the declaration. Um, a bit rich. Coming so from him. we're not going to assume. We're not, I know, mm-hmm. right? But we're, we're not going to assume there's a logic to the way that they've oriented their complaints in the Declaration of Independence. No. Or even, you know, not assume that, but at least go with the structure they provided. I'm going to rewrite their argument, <laughs> and then I'm going to attack the thing that I've rewritten. Yeah. Isn't that, there's a word for that, you know, fallacy that I'm thinking of. Um, well, I mean, it's a straw man. Um, well, you make somebody's argument simpler. Yeah. and mm-hmm. Yeah, straw man. <laughs> anyway, the first head consists of the acts of government charged as so many acts of encroachment. So many usurpations upon the present king and his parliaments exclusively, which had been constantly exercised by his predecessors and their parliaments. Is that a fair way to? Yeah, that's exactly the way that we should have described it in our Declaration of Independence, Jeremy. We should have said, well, our first set of grievances are things that the king has always done that we don't like. Yeah, no, that's that's obviously just refusing to, to not even charitably read the Declaration, but just to not actively hostilely read it um yes but uh yeah anyway uh all right so let's read about those these are ones that he thinks the king has always done yeah that we're complaining about so what are they in all the articles comprised in this head is there a single power alleged to have been exercised during the present reign which had not been uh, constantly exercised by preceding kings and preceding parliaments Read only the commission and instruction for the Council of Trade drawn up in the ninth of King William III, addressed to Mr. Locke and others. See there what powers were exercised by the king and parliament over the colonies. Certainly the commissioners were directed to inquire into and make their reports concerning those matters only in which the king and parliament had a power of controlling the colonies. Now the commissioners are instructed to inquire into the condition of plantations, as well with regard to the administration of government and justice as in relation to the commerce thereof, into the means of making them most beneficial and useful to England, into the staples and manufactures which may be encouraged there, into the trades that are taken up and exercised there, which may be which may prove prejudicial to England, into the means of diverting them from such trades. Farther, they are instructed to examine into and weigh the acts of the assemblies of the plantations, to set down the usefulness or mischief to the crown, to the kingdom, or to the plantation themselves. And farther still, they are instructed to require an account of all the monies given for public uses by the assemblies of the plantations and how the same are or have been expended or laid out. Is there now a single act of the present reign which does not fall under one or other of these instructions? Now, firstly, this didn't even apply to all the colonies. No. I think this was just the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, um, 
they were not all under the same administration. You know, we had crown colonies, we had charter colonies. Yeah, but again... This is just a legal mess to begin with. Again, that's the kind of thing Bentham doesn't care about at all. He would rather just see it as a relation of the, you know, the crown and parliament command and everyone else obeys. So it doesn't matter. But the command was an issue to everybody else. It was only issued to the Carolinas, I I think. Don't quote me on that Yeah, one. I mean... Uh, but it, cert- it was certainly not to every colony. No. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that, that's... Again, it, he doesn't think in terms of legal entities and their rights. He just sort of thinks in terms of people who are subject to government power. And it's clear that that's somebody was ordered to do yeah. it. So clearly, the government had the power to do these things. And also, right. you know, I feel like you get a window into like everything that Lex Rex does and works on and cares about just from <laughs> reading the kinds of bad arguments that are in this. <laughs> because what what do these read like? You know, the most beneficial and useful to England. Mm-hmm. Congress writes laws like this all the time when they're directing executive agencies what to do. They say the FDA. Uh, figure out which foods are healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, Lex Rex takes the position that that is an unconstitutional delegation of congressional power to the executive, right? You know, that's a thing that we really care about. Now, I think anybody honestly reading an expression like um, uh, means of making them the most beneficial and useful to England, what are we talking about here? We're talking about making these plantations productive, yeah. right? Does that mean that they can make people on these plantations slaves to the crown if they determine that's going to be the most useful and beneficial to England? I think most charitable people would say probably not, right? right? I mean, this isn't just an unbounded power. No. The fact that it's broadly phrased doesn't mean there aren't implicit limitations on it. And those limit, what would those limitations be? Well, obviously the ones that are included in the English Constitution, Yeah. right? So whatever rights people have that are enshrined in the English Constitution would wouldn't be negated by the fact that these acts have been put forth. No, Um, but again, kind of an utterly stupid way of (laughs) establishing this. But again, Bentham doesn't like the notion of rights in general. um, And he certainly doesn't like the idea of binding precedent. uh, And both of those things (laughs) play a key role here in, in actually interpreting what that phrase means. What Bentham wants law to be like is just, somehow you don't have to think about anything beyond what the text of the code says. Um, even though any sort of reflection will, will tell you that that's impossible in any real sense. Um, but, uh, we, we've got a, you know, Lex Rex, here's a good example. Lex Rex has a project we're working on right now. Um, that is opposing a, a, a proposed regulation that's been put forth by the secretary of state for California um, where, and David, you might remember the language a little better than I do. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, but basically, it allows uh, election officials to exclude poll watchers from a polling place um, if they have deemed that they are a disruption yeah. to the polling mm-hmm. place. And it gives no criteria to determine whether or not the person is a disruption. Uh, it's purely on the say-so of the elections official who is making that call. Yeah. You can see where these might read kind of like that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they are pretty broad grants of power, but if an elections official only ever excludes people who are, you know, I don't know, throwing eggs at people trying to count votes, and that's the way that it's only ever been exercised yeah. for decades, 
you can see why people might not object to that regulatory guidance. It's when they start exercising the full extent of that power and saying, no, I think that you're being disruptive when you look at me the wrong way. That's an abuse, yeah. right? Because that's not actually disruptive. Yeah. And you can look at these, you know, things like, um, you know, the means of making them the most useful to England or to set down the usefulness or uh, mischief to the crown of the kingdom or the plantations themselves. Uh, you know, you can see why these are very similarly worded kinds of, uh, of decrees. Yeah. The fact that he also sort of implicitly holds that whatever's good for people in the mother country and bad for people in the colonies would fall under this. When a big part of the argument was, no, people in the colonies are still part of England as an entity and their rights, you know, under that community have been violated Clearly, Bentham hasn't really right. bothered to consider that, that no, they they are part of England. So what's most beneficial to England includes them as part of it. And that is that is sort of the, the beauty of the Declaration of Independence, too, because, you know, that very first line, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with another. You know, King George, when he reads that, first thing he's going to think is you're not a separate people. Right. You're the same people. Well, if we're the same people, then we're entitled to the rights of Englishmen. You can't have it both ways. Either we're a separate people who can be independent, or we're the same people and we're entitled to the rights that you give to your subjects. The powers then, of which several articles now before us complain, are supported by usage. Uh, Were conceived to be supported then, just after the revolution, at the time these instructions were given, and were to be supported only upon this foot of usage. Still, that usage being coeval with the colonies, their tacit consent and approbation through all successive periods in which that usage has prevailed would be implied. Even then, the legality of these powers would stand upon the same foot as most of the prerogatives of the crown, most of the rights of the people. Even then, the exercise of those powers could in no wise be deemed usurpations or encroachments. Just continuing the same argument there. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot to be said about that. So, um... But the truth is, to the exercise of these powers, on many occasions, the colonies have not tacitly but expressly consented, as expressly as any subject of Great Britain ever consented to acts of the British Parliament. Consult the journals of either... That might be your problem, Jeremy. (laughs) Consult the giant journals of either House of Parliament. Consult the proceedings of their own assemblies, and innumerable will be the occasions on which the legality of these powers will be found to be expressly recognized by acts of the colonial assemblies. (laughs) We said it was legal. <laughs> if you look at the records of Parliament, we said it was legal to do this to the colonies. They're wrong. Mm-hmm. From preceding reigns... I'm saying I'm repeating his argument here. I don't, I don't think this. Yeah. <laughs> from preceding reigns, the petitions from these assemblies were couched in a language very different from that which they have assumed under the present reign. And praying for the non-exercise of those powers, oh in particular gosh. instances, they acknowledged their legality. The right in general was recognized. The exercise of it, in particular instances, was prayed to be suspended on the sole ground of inexpedience. Oh my gosh, Jeremy. Okay. <laughs> if I'm going to sue somebody because I believe they violated my legal rights, what is... I have, I have a lot of clients that would disagree with this, so maybe it's a bad example, <laughs> but what's a smarter approach to go up to the person that's done something wrong and say, hey, you know... I know that you are just following your policy, but this really harms my client. 
can you please make an exception and help them out? It's not really a fair application of this rule. Or to say, demand to cease and desist from what you're doing. You violated all of my clients' rights. And if you do not immediately cease and desist from what you have, uh, you know, from continued action of whatever kind, then we will have no choice but to pursue legal action against you. Yeah. Yeah. You generally want to start. Which of those? Same set of circumstances. Which of those do you think we ought to start yeah. with? You, you generally start with the less hostile um, of the two. Um. Right. It's perfectly conceivable that they were willing to have things that they do rightly think are their rights mm -hmm. abused, you know, continue to be abused by Parliament and the British Crown. And for the sake of maintaining peace and harmony, just acknowledge, sure, you have power over that. Yeah. In fact, Thomas Jefferson says exactly that in the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, you know, what is it? Mankind being more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. Um, man mankind does not shed governments for light and transient reasons, but with a long train of abuses and usurpations, um, pursuing invariably the same object events as a design. Then, you know, at that point, they would do it. So he acknowledges that earlier in the same document, but here we have this argument from Bentham again. Yeah. The less reason can the Americans have to complain against the exercise of these powers as it was under the constant exercise of the self-same powers that they have grown up with a vigor and rapidity unexampled. In other words, because we made you very prosperous by oppressing you, you shouldn't <laughs> complain about it. That within a period in which other communities had scarcely had time to take root, they have shot forth exuberant branches. So flourishing is their agriculture that, we are told, besides feeding plentifully their own growing multitudes, their annual exports exceed a million. So flourishing is their trade that, we are told, it has increased far beyond the speculations of the most sanguine imagination. So powerful are they in arms that we see them defy the united force of that nation, which, but a little century ago, called them into being which but a few years ago in their defense encountered and subdued almost the united force of Europe. Yeah, because uh, clearly the only thing that causes um, a prosperous economy is uh, just really good executive actions. Uh, government creates wealth, clearly. Uh, <laughs> well, and legislative yeah, action. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mean any of that, obviously. I mean, we're separating from both right, yeah. the king and parliament. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't mean any of that, obviously. Um, you can't just take credit obviously. For, uh, for American prosperity by saying, see, it's because we were so good at being in charge. Uh, yeah. It's also, okay, even if we were to grant that the reason America is prosperous is because they're a British colony administered by the, the English government, mm -hmm. there's nothing in the Declaration of Independence about our material circumstances right. being bad. Yeah. And in fact, earlier, he basically... We're not separated because we're so poor. I mean, again, this is this reads is very modern. Yeah. Like, you know, that it's conceivable that people who are very poor would have a revolution, like a Marxist revolution. Right. But it's not conceivable that those who are wealthy would do similarly. Yeah. And in fact, earlier in this document, he complained that the Declaration didn't complain about high taxation and, and like, you know, material injury. It's, it's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> then say, right. you know, you, oh, it would be one thing if you were complaining that we hurt your pockets. And then a minute later, he's like, we put everything in your pockets. <laughs> you didn't complain that we didn't hurt your pocket. Yeah. I'm sorry. You didn't complain that we hurt your pockets. Also, we didn't hurt your pockets. <laughs> right. Why are you claiming we did? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But again, I, what an a you, you get the you get the sense that he he didn't bother to to sort of come up with a coherent argument. He's just reading phrase by phrase, and whatever comes to mind, he's going to put down. I want to remind everybody: British government at the time this was written, most powerful nation on earth, most powerful wealthy nation on earth, yep. controls the riches of India. Mm-hmm. And the Caribbean. and This yeah. is the best they could do to mount a criticism of our Declaration <laughs> of Independence, is they hired the world's dumbest man. <laughs> How did we describe him? Pedantic? Most pedantic man? Um, you used the, the term scholastic, um, and you, you, scholastic, that's you told right. people that by that you really meant something meaner, and I think that probably continues to be the case. Um, use your own imaginations. It does. Uh, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Hired the world's most scholastic man to write one of the dumbest rebuttals I have ever read. Okay. Um, whose turn was I it? I think it's mine. Um, if the exercise... We finished the first head. So we finished <laughs> all the ones about the things that the king's always been doing forever that you shouldn't complain about because they aren't new. So what's the next yeah. head? <clears throat> the second head consists of acts whose professed object was either the maintenance or the amendment of their constitution. These acts are passed with the view either of freeing from impediments the course of their commercial transactions, or of facilitating the administration of justice, or of poising more equally the different powers in their constitution, or of preventing the establishment, uh, establishing of courts inconsistent with the spirit of the constitution. But by the way, we didn't say which causes of action from the Declaration of Independence were actually covered yeah. under the last head, because like this one seems like all of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, like everything I can remember from the Declaration of Independence is covered under this one. It really feels to me like he just wanted to complain that a lot of things had already been going on. Right. When we didn't actually have any causes of action. Yeah. That that was true of. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to get to the new stuff Uh where he says that, yeah, okay, well, there are some new laws where we did take away your rights, but like we needed to do that. Yeah. It was for your good. We were, we were looking out for you. It doesn't matter that you have the right of self-government in these things. And we abridged that by dictating to you, Um, you know, it was better. Well, you don't have a right of self-government. We haven't established that because we couldn't cite to the specific reference where God said that we did. No, but again, the the charters of colonies do spell out certain rights. Um, But, you know, again, he doesn't really believe in those. So. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. I mean, English Constitution totally aside, the colony charters yeah. specified rights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, we broke those. So now those are nullified and we don't have those rights anymore, right? Maybe. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, one of the objections is, is abolishing free governments, like the government of Massachusetts, which was provided for in their charter. Yeah. Okay. To state the object of these acts is to justify them. Acts of tyranny they cannot be. Acts of usurpation they are not, because no new power is assumed. By former parliaments in former reigns, officers of customs had been sent to America. Courts of admiralty had been established there. The increase of trade and population introduced uh, induced the parliaments under the present reign for the convenience of the colonists, <laughs> and to obviate their own objections of delays arising from appeals to England to establish a board of customs and an admiralty court of appeal. Strange indeed is it to hear the establishment of this board and these courts alleged as proofs of usurpation. And in the same paper, in the same breath, to hear it urged as a head of complaint that his majesty refused his assent to much greater exertion of power 
to an exertion of power which might be dangerous, the establishment of new courts of judicature, what in one instance he might have done, to have done in another, cannot be unconstitutional. In former reigns, charters had been altered. In the present reign, the constitution of one charter, uh, having been found inconsistent with the ends of good order and government, was amended. Mm. Yeah, so there's that's why he was able to amend those charters. It's because they came from him, uh, and the king is not bound by his own laws. Right. Also, I, this is the first time this, this one really struck me, but in essence, one of the things he's saying here is, why are you complaining that we sent you to military courts uh, when it would have been obviously much worse if we just set up like a new district court, basically. <laughs> they already had courts. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like either be tried by a military tribunal or you have to cross the Atlantic Ocean, which in those days could be dangerous, let alone, you know, time consuming. Um, but, you know, know that that's better than using the courts you're accustomed to in your own colonies um well, what's this where he says that we complain that his majesty refuses assent to a much greater exertion of power yeah the exertion of which power might be dangerous i mean there's several where he, he refuses assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary yeah. you know is that what they're referring uh, to no it's i think it's the establishment of new courts of judicature the ne- that next phrase which um right because he wasn't staffing courts right. here if you want to have a judge, he's got to be appointed by, or at least approved by the king. Yeah, but somehow doing that is uh, apparently a more dangerous power to give the king than trying all of the colonists in, in military courts, um, I, I, uh-huh. I guess. Or, again, making them cross the ocean whenever they're sued. Um, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, yeah, it was bad that you didn't let us have our own independent judicial system. Mm -hmm. But given that that is what you required of us, you could have at least appointed judges to our courts. Mm -hmm. Third head consists of temporary acts passed pro re nota, the object of each of which was to remedy some temporary evil and the duration of which was restrained to the duration of the evil itself. I'm not even sure, actually... I mean, conveniently, he doesn't mention whether or not those acts are still in effect. Yeah. I'm not actually even sure I mean, we've... what he has in mind there. The, like, the um, dissolution of, of Massachusetts government? Or... Well, I think, like, the Townsend Acts. Yeah that, yeah, that would be putting all of Massachusetts under martial yeah. law, for instance. That, that, seems, that seems bad no matter how long, <laughs> how long it lasts. Um... Yeah, but it's temporary, so you shouldn't complain about it. It's funny because, you know... I think the last time that I taught a class on this was pre-COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we sort of view temporary measures a little bit differently now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, th- there's a lot. Not so temporary. There's a lot in the English uh, legal history that would uh, suggest that, no, people do mind, even if you do something to them temporarily, like, um, you know, hold them without charges. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that was sort of a big deal. Um, people made a fuss about that one. Um, or martial yeah. law would be a big uh-huh. one. Um, <laughs> stay at home orders. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, the... All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Neither in these acts was any new power affirmed. In some instances only, the objects upon that power where it was exercised were new. 
Nothing was done but what former kings and former parliaments have shown themselves ready to do. And the same circumstance subsisted. The same circumstances never did subsist before, because till the present reign, the colonies never dared to call into question the supremacy of the parliament. Well, you see, we never had to declare martial law over <laughs> you because you never failed to recognize the supremacy of parliament before. Yeah, yeah that's that's fair. All right. You made us do this to you. Fair uh. argument, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We never were as recalcitrant uh-huh. and stubborn, so you didn't have to yeah. lay down the law. <laughs> no charge classed under this head can be called a grievance. Then only is the subject aggrieved. I think it can. <laughs> In fact, we, we called them those, but uh, <laughs> then only is the subject aggrieved. Yeah, the kind of argument he does. No, we did call it that. Jeremy's wrong mm-hmm. here. <laughs> <laughs> then only is the subject aggrieved when paying due obedience to the established laws of his country, he is not protected in his established rights. From the moment he withholds obedience, we agree with that. He forfeits his rights to protection. Nor can the means employed to bring him back to obedience, however severe, be called grievances, especially if those means be uh, to cease the very moment that the end is obtained. Yeah, um, we don't actually disagree here. You were going to say I was something. Gonna say, it, I think, in broad strokes, that's that's not wrong. But there 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 are still limits on the means um, that that you know are recognized. You know, you you. If you break a traffic law, that doesn't mean you can now be held indefinitely. And, right. You know, have your thumbs put in thumbs screws, or just and you have know, killed on sight, wife shot in front yeah. of you. And... <laughs> um, you know, right. you you violated a law, therefore yeah. you have no legal protections anymore, and we'll just order anyone who sees you to shoot you. Um, no, not not quite. Is it also the the entire the sense in which it's right is what completely goes over his head somehow. What the Declaration of Independence is saying is that the king has done just right. this. He's broken his side of the bargain, which entitles us not to obey. Right. Um, but again, I don't think it's ever entered into his head. The idea that uh, there are political obligations that go both ways, or that the king could be subject to yeah. someone in any in any. In fact, regard. it turns out later that's why he doesn't like. Well, it turns out later that's why he doesn't like kings. You know, that's why he's in favor of the French Revolution yeah. because he doesn't like that kings are subject to no <laughs> one. Well, guess what, Jeremy? They never were. Right. That's just not true. Kings are subject to the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason he hates our Declaration of Independence so much is that we don't object to the idea of a king as such. We don't object to the idea of a parliament as such. We object to these things when they act extra lawfully right. and when they go ultra vires. That's very offensive to him because he hates the idea of rule yeah. of law. Uh, the last head consists of acts of self-defense exercised in consequence of resistance already shown were represented in the declaration as acts of oppression tending to provoke resistance. That's a terrible <laughs> sentence. Has his majesty cut off their trade with all parts of the world? They first attempted to cut off trade with Great Britain. Has his majesty ordered their vessels to be seized? They first burnt the vessels of the king. Has his majesty sent troops to chastise them? They first took up arms against the authority of the king. Has his majesty engaged the Indians against them? They first... Okay, this one is such a stretch. They first engaged the Indians against the troops of the king. No, that is just... When? When did that ever... Anyway, has his majesty commanded their captives to serve on board his fleet? He has only saved them from the gallows. He's like, okay, well, you didn't do that one, but I could have hanged them instead. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what he means by um, 
by saying that the the Americans had first engaged the Indians. Unless I think there was a Native American or two at the uh, the Boston Massacre. Um, if I could be making that up. Uh, and that's a stretch in any case. I mean, we were um, attacked in droves in King Philip's War. There's that too, And yeah. the Crown did nothing to prevent yeah. it. Uh, you know, like thousands of colonists were massacred and the Crown just kind of left us to our own devices. Yeah. And the colonies had to scrape together their own militias. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, yeah, to, to be fair, there are only three possible things I could, can think of that he might be referring to. One is that, just that like, yeah, there's a history of conflict between... That's when you guys were good guys still. So I'm considering you to have been English. So you attacked us when that happened. Um, So there's that. There's the possibility that he's talking about Native Americans being at some of the, you know, some of the events in more recent past. Or the only other thing I can think of is the fact that uh, at the Boston Tea Party, the people who were throwing the tea overboard dressed up like Indians. Um, I really don't know. I hope that's I really what he don't means. know. I really hope I that's don't what he think means. it is, but it'd be the the funniest option for sure. Also, like let's just okay. So they first attempted to cut off trade with Great mm-hmm. Britain. He's referring to the Stamp Act yeah. there. The fact that we wouldn't allow an exclusive trade monopoly that the king had no right to impose. We did not cut off trade with Great Britain. We didn't. They first burnt the vessels of the king. What is that even referring to? I don't know. Uh, Possibly there was some. Do you, a gross misunderstanding of the Boston Tea Party? Or maybe? maybe someone somewhere burnt a ship. I, you know, I don't know. That that's that's possible. That's that's true. Because if you failed to distinguish between the acts of American government yeah. and the acts of the people, which he right. would, because he doesn't acknowledge the legitimacy of our government, yeah. um, there's a lot more accusations you can make. Right. So it's possible that's what he means. In fact, I, I think that I would guess that probably is what he means, but I, I don't know. Also, taking up arms against the authority of the king. Is that is that the Boston Massacre? Like the throwing rocks and stuff right. and, and snowballs? Yeah, uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, I don't know. That's the first armed conflict yeah. between, you know, the, uh, the king's military and the colonists. Right. Which... That's that's a pretty uh, they had yeah, guns. That's a pretty thin. <laughs> it's a pretty thin excuse. Um, they fired on the crowd. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, you get the really long one, yep. David. <laughs> By some, these acts have. My goodness, nobody should ever write a paragraph this no. long. But we're gonna we're gonna get through it. <laughs> By some, these acts have been improperly called acts of punishment, and we are then asked with an air of insult, what. Will you punish without a trial, without a hearing? You shouldn't punish without a trial or a hearing. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that shouldn't be like a yeah. mocking thing that you say, Jeremy. That's uh-huh. like a basic part of the rule of law and due process. Yeah. Um, and no doubt punishment, whether ordinary or extraordinary, whether by indictment, impeachment, or bill of attainder, should be preceded by judicial examination. But the acts comprised under this head are not Good. acts of punishment. They are, as we have called them, this of self-defense. And these are not, cannot be preceded by any judicial examination. Yeah, it's, we, we didn't, you know, we were acting in the heat of the moment. We're just defending ourselves by replacing your governor. We we were acting in the heat of the moment when we (laughs) debated it passed and had uh, ratified by the king all these new laws. That was, you know, an act of. 
Yeah, a replacement of your uh-huh. governor, a new tax imposed on imports. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. No, it's such BS. This is all, you know, the heat of the moment. Stupid. Uh- <laughs> anyway. These uh-huh. ca- are not, cannot be, preceded by any judicial examination. An example or two will serve to place the difference between acts of punishment and acts of self-defense in a stronger light than any definition we can give. It has happened that bodies of manufacturers have risen and armed in order to compel their masters to increase their wages. It has happened that bodies of peasants have risen... It's called yeah. a union. <laughs> Yes, it has happened that bodies of peasants have risen and armed in order to compel the farmer to sell at a lower price. It has happened that the civil magistrate, unable to reduce the insurgents to their duty, has called the military to his aid. But did ever any man imagine... One of these things is not like the others, my goodness. Like, you take the entity that has less power, peasants versus lords, Mm -hmm. workers versus employers, government versus subjects. Yeah. It has happened that the insurgents have had resisted the military as they have re- resisted the civil magistrate. It has happened that in consequence of this resistance, some of the insurgents have been killed. But did ever any man... Im- oh, just has yeah. happened. <laughs> but did ever any man imagine that those who were thus killed were therefore punished? Um, yeah, they were not judicially necessarily, but um, that is... I think you would still call it a punishment. Um I think that if a labor union was defending yeah. its perceived right to higher wages mm-hmm. and they killed the factory owner, I think people would regard that as a, like a lynching. <laughs> uh, anyway, no more can they said uh, be said to like, be. It's no more can they be said to be punished than could the incendiary who should be buried beneath the ruins of the house which he had feloniously set on fire. Yeah, that's a. Oh my That's gosh. exactly what it what it's like. That's a fair comparison. Yeah, uh, the yeah the, the imposition of martial law on the Massachusetts Bay is just like the natural consequence of what happens when you stand inside a burning building, for sure. Um, take an example yet nearer to the present case. When the Duke of Cumberland led the armies of the king, foreign and domestic, against the rebels in Scotland, did any man conceive that he was sent to punish the rebels? Clearly not. Again, I'm not sure. By by the way, like a paragraph from now, he'll argue that they are punishing the rebels, but (laughs) that's neither here nor there. (laughs) He was sent to protect dutiful and loyal subjects who remained in the peace of the king against the outrages of rebels who had broken the peace of the king. Does any man speak of those who fell at the Battle of Culloden as of men that were punished? Would that man have been thought in his census who should have urged that the armies of the king should not have been sent against these rebels in Scotland till those very rebels had been judicially heard and judicially convicted? Does not every man feel that the fact, the only fact, please scroll down, necessary to be known in order to justify these acts of self-defense is simply this. Are men in, in arms against the authority of the king? Who does not feel that to authenticate this fact... That's all you have to know. Yeah. Does, uh, who does not feel that to authenticate this fact demands no judicial inquiry? If when his royal highness had led the army under his command into Scotland, there had been no body of men in arms, if terrified at his approach, they had either laid down their arms and submitted, or had dispersed and retired quietly, each to his own home, what would have been the consequence? The civil magistrate would have searched for and seized upon those who had been in arms and would have brought them to a court of justice. 
that court would have proceeded to examine and to condemn or to acquit as evidence was or was not given of the guilt of the respective culprits. The rebels did not submit. They did not lay down their arms. They did not disperse. They resisted the Duke. A battle ensued. Some of the rebels fled. Others were slain. Others taken. It is upon those only of the last class who were brought before and condemned by courts of justice that punishment was inflicted. By what kind of logic then are these acts ranked in the class of grievances? So what he's saying, and I I just want to impress upon everybody here, the importance of the right to petition Mm -hmm. for, for redress of wrongs that we have in the United States of America. What he is saying is the only way these grievances could ever have been heard in any kind of a court of the law is if the men accused of wrongdoing had been dragged into trial for criminal offenses. And at that point, we would only determine whether they are guilty or not guilty. Mm -hmm. There is no way that the actual edicts the king put forth or any of the acts of the British Parliament could ever be examined by a court of the law to determine if they were right. Yep. And he thinks this is very naturally the case because that's what you do with insurrection. Yes. Again, he doesn't believe that rights exist, really. Um, So when when Parliament passes a law, there's no question about its lawfulness because you don't have anything to compare it against. It's the law because Parliament says the law. These are the acts. These are the exertions of constitutional and hitherto undisputed (laughs) powers also, the fact that you hadn't been paying attention, Jeremy, doesn't mean they hadn't been disputed. Right. For which, in the in the audacious paper, a patriot king is introduced as a prince whose character is marked by every act which may define a tyrant as unfit to be the ruler of a free people. These are the acts, these exertions of constitutional and hitherto undisputed powers by which the members of the Congress declare themselves and their constituents to be absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, pronounce all political connection between Great Britain and America to be totally dissolved. With that hypocrisy which pervades the whole of the Declaration, they pretend indeed that this event is not of their seeking, that it is forced upon them, that they only acquiesce in the necessity which denounces their separation from us, which compels them hereafter to hold us as they hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Mm -hmm. That didn't have an open quotation, (laughs) a closed quotation. Oh, I see. He has nested quotations that he doesn't format properly. Yeah. Well, that that dispute on how how to properly format quotation, that's an ongoing one between us and the Brits. Um, you know, I fight that war in my current, in I don't my like academic work, <laughs> but, uh, their way is really bad. Yeah. Um, anyway, maybe do you, do you do it? Do you acquiesce to British rule? No, because the student, the student the right handbook way? says that you can choose to use, uh, either North American or UK conventions as long as you do so consistently. So naturally I represent America by doing it the American way. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good, David. <laughs> anyway. See, notice how David says, because the handbook says it, he does it this way. That is not saying that if the handbook didn't say it, that he wouldn't still do it this right. way. And, you know, to refute Jeremy <laughs> Bentham's point from a few paragraphs Yeah, ago. it just means that I do so without having to weigh up the, the relative advantages and disadvantages of, of uh, being marked down for doing so. Uh, anyway. Right. Final paragraph. <laughs> Yeah, given that he can cite the handbook, he does so. (laughs) How this declaration may strike others, I know not. To me, I own, it appears that it cannot fail, to use the words of a great orator, of doing us knight's service. 
the mouth of faction. Isn't it yeoman's service? I mean, that's the form of that expression I'm more familiar with. But, um, you know. It's from Hamlet. Maybe uh, maybe to cite uh, or to, to uh, compare to a lowly yeoman um, see. would be to concede too much to the principle of equality. There's a footnote here. Oh, I see. He's making fun of Edmund Burke and didn't realize that it was an allusion to Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yep, that fits. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> um, the mouth of faction, we may reasonably presume, will be closed. The eyes of those who saw not or would not see that the Americans were long since aspiring at independence will be opened. That's not true. We talked about that last year. We, we weren't seeking independence. Um, uh-huh. anyway, uh, the nation will unite as one man and teach this rebellious people that it is one thing for them to say the connection which bound them to us is dissolved another to dissolve it as you noted actually he's again he's conceding that we are a people um, even if a rebellious one teach these rebellious mm-hmm. people where does he say not a punishment <laughs> uh, all throughout that last paragraph really oh I guess it's didactic yeah, yeah. so it's not a punishment yeah. right um <laughs> It is one thing for them to say the connection which bound them to us is dissolved, another to dissolve it. That to accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it. That there is no peace with them but the peace of the king. No war with them but that war which offended justice wages against criminals. So again, no, so it is judicial punishment then. If we're already criminals, it's it's judicial punishment. Um, Anyway, Uh we too, I hope... Yeah, that's just... He's just blatantly contradicting (laughs) himself. We too, I hope shall acquiesce in the necessity of submitting to whatever burdens of making whatever efforts may be necessary to bring this ungrateful and rebellious people back to that allegiance that they have long had it in contemplation to renounce and have now at last so daringly renounced. Well, how did that one go for you, Jeremy? And thank, (laughs) yeah, thank God that failed. My goodness. Yeah. I don't know... Yeah, I don't know if it's just because, you know, the the political parallel is already there. And this is an English guy ranting about, you know, rebellious people, blah, blah, blah. But like, doesn't this sort of sound like the dialogue that Edward the Longshanks has in Braveheart? Like, you know, he's, he's just like callously disregarding human life. Like, <laughs> I know, like, we're just going to the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Awful man. Folks, I we cannot be grateful enough for this independent nation that we now have. And the fact that we no longer have to answer to a-holes like Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> um, you know, we we've got we've got our own share of tyrants here. We've got our own share of uh, you know, idiots and yeah. scholastics and, and the rest of them. Mm-hmm. But um at least we now have commonly mutually agreed upon standards and laws that we can now use to adjudge those people as wrong. Uh, that's why the Lex Rex Institute exists. And we encourage you if you have, you know, if, if it, if you feel moved to support the Lex Rex Institute this 4th of July, we will continue to support these truths that we hold self-evident. Uh, and, you know, or if you don't have money right now, then we appreciate volunteer work too. There's, those are both ways that you can join the fight and make a huge difference and contribution to our country. So, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about Jeremy Bentham this week or wait till we get to next time? Yeah. Um, I feel like 
you know, that, that, that document kind of speaks for itself. Um, he's pedantic, but he's not even good at being pedantic because he misunderstands so much. Um, he doesn't believe in, in rights. He only believes in authority. Um, and, uh, yeah, just not, not a good exemplar, uh, for anything really. Uh, and so when you see people reasoning in similar ways, uh, you should firmly refute them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a good review of the uh, short <laughs> review of the declaration. Uh, I'll, you know, I, I mirror most of what you said in my review. I would also, well, I'll just add, you know, half a star, Jeremy Bentham's <laughs> review of the declaration of independence, half a star. Yeah. All right. I don't, we don't we don't do zero stars, right? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think we do. Um, yeah, that's the minimum rating. Yeah. yeah, that's the lowest rating you can get. So, yeah. good job, Jeremy. Um, somebody tell his head what we gave him. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be very offended. Um, all right. Uh, if if that's if that's it, then I guess uh, stick around for the ever popular disclaimers. And happy Fourth of July, everybody. Yeah, happy for the July. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.